Buongiorno everybody and welcome! This is Identity Unlocked and I'm your host, Vittorio Bertocci. Identity Unlocked is the podcast that discusses identity specifications and trends from a developer perspective. Identity Unlocked is powered by OfZero in partnership with the OpenID Foundation and ID Pro. In this episode, we're going to go back in time and revisit a historical artifact, the information card and its most famous implementation, Windows Card Space. Information cards were the first manifestation of a user-centric identity movement, and although they are extinct today, they had an incredible influence today's identity protocols and features. And to do that, I have secured a very, very special guest, Stuart Kwan, Partner Group Program Manager at Microsoft, who lived through the information card era from a special seat at the helm of a Windows Cardsverse feature team. Welcome, Stuart. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you. Thanks for joining us. As is tradition for Identity Unlocked, I'm going to ask you if you'd like to share the story of how you ended up working in Identity and eventually in your current position. But knowing you, I suspect this might take half of the episode. So uh, let's see what happens. So would you like to share your identity origin story with us? Uh, sure. Origin story, yes. We'll, we'll, we'll confine it maybe to the beginning. Like many other people, I did not set out to work on identity. Uh, I came about it sort of happenstance. So well, I grew up in Canada. I'm from... I originally from Ottawa, Canada. I went to the University of Waterloo, uh, which has a, a relatively famed computer science and engineering program. One aspect, and I took computer engineering, and this was back in the mid '90s, the early mid '90s. And one of the uh, hallmarks of the program that they had there was it was a co- cooperative education program. So when you did your degree, you went to school for four months, and then you would work for four months, and you'd go to school for four months. It takes a little bit longer than uh, than usual to get a bachelor's degree, but you have this work experience uh, when you're done. And it's with work experience with uh, employers like you'd expect, uh, especially in high tech back then, there were a lot of high tech employers that were emerging and Microsoft was one of them. So I applied to do an internship at Microsoft. I was offered the internship. I, I came out here in the fall of 1993 and I worked on a project that was codenamed Utopia. I didn't know what it was. They couldn't tell me what it was uh, before I got here. They said it was about a next generation user interface. And uh, those of you who really know your computer arcana will know that Utopia became Microsoft Bob. So oh, I did, wow. uh, yeah, I, I worked on, on Microsoft Bob uh, for for four months as part of my internship. Uh, it, was, it was a fascinating experience. I worked with some really interesting people at the end of my internship, uh, I still had more internships to come. I wasn't near done my, uh, my uh, degree yet. And they, my recruiter asked, would you like to come back and do a second internship? And I said, sure. Uh, yeah, I'd like to do that, but I'd like to do something a little deeper in the system, a little lower level. And she, she said, uh, systems, maybe the systems group, would you like to work in the systems group? And I said, sure, let I'll do that. And that's how I landed up in uh, a team that was working on what became Active Directory. Uh, Back then it was known as the Windows NT Directory Service. And we were working on Windows NT 5.0, which became Windows 2000. 
And that's how I became involved in, in directory services and, and then identity. I guess the, the progression back then, it was about enterprise directories in enterprises and it has gradually morphed over time to include more and more things. And, and strangely enough, in all the time that I've been at Microsoft, I've worked on this topic that we now call identity. Back then we called it distributed system security uh, or enterprise directory. And I've, I've worked in this area the whole time. I have not found the bottom of it yet. It's uh, vast and uh, there's so many different parts of it. And I've, I've had the, the, the pleasure to work on so many different parts of it. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's my, my origin story for identity. Wonderful. And from there, how did you end up in the, your current position and what do you do today? Uh, so I, I've been what's called a, a program manager uh, at Microsoft the whole time. We're, we've actually been retitled. Now we're product managers so that we're more recognizable than what everybody else does in industry. Uh, so I've been working on the, the design and experience and the, the roadmap and the feature set and functionality of, of products that first was in Windows Server. My first full-time job at Microsoft was to work on the domain name system server, the DNS server for Windows NT. And that shipped in, in Windows 2000. And that was an essential part of, of all of the pieces that accompanied Active Directory. That gave me some exposure to standards. I worked, I did some ITF uh, work. I, I have a couple of RFCs with my name on them for um, secure domain name system update. There's a couple of things that we need to do there. After that, uh, I started working on more parts of Active Directory, the, the LDAP implementation in Active Directory we, we shipped Active Directory in Windows 2000 in the year 2000. After that, I worked, I, I started working on more and more parts, but I was moving up in, in, in management as well. I became a pointy haired boss that was working with a, a team of program managers. And uh, along the way, I, I, let me see, the different things I worked on included Active Directory Federation Services, uh, Windows Identity Foundation, uh, the uh, the Active Directory Authentication Library and the Microsoft Authentication Library, ADAL and MSAL, the Microsoft Identity Integration Server, which was the meta directory product uh, that evolved from the, the company that we, when we acquired Kim Cameron's company, Zoom, uh, it became MIIS and has many, had had many different names since then. So let's see what else. Oh, and then as we started going to the cloud, uh, I worked on the Access Control Service, which was a predecessor to what I work on now, which is Azure Active Directory, uh, the identity system for, for Microsoft's cloud. And, and uh, let's see, so what do I do exactly right now? What I do in, as, in my role as a, a group manager, a group product manager is mainly actually around access control or authorization and uh, deciding who's allowed to access what after you've signed up. Very interesting and uh, amazing trajectory. Not everyone knows that uh, we did some of that trajectory together. As in, like, uh, you have been my direct boss for like five years, six it was, years. It was. Like it was. A, it was a good stretch. It was a good fun stretch. I have. I have vivid memories of the moment. Yeah, when we when we had that conversation, it's like maybe we should do this. Yeah, that was. Um, it was like a, a very interesting ride, but. Fantastic. Like, basically, you are like uh, this monument that saw all the eras and uh, like all the civilization grow and die and like uh, all those cycles, you have seen them. So you are absolutely perfect for the thing that uh, we want to do today. And so here I want to give a fair warning to the audience. 
I devoted a few years of my professional life to the project that we are, are going to talk about. And so this time, although I'll try to contain myself, but I already know I'm not going to be a fully impartial host. I already know that I will occasionally have to chime in and give my take, but I'll try to do it as little as possible. But fair warning. Okay, perfect. Fantastic. So let's get into it. And let's, let's set the stage. The year is um, 2006, and uh, Microsoft has just announced a hailstorm, and uh, they got a huge backlash from it. So what was hailstorm? What was going on? Uh, um, what happened? What, how did we end up with this thing that we call uh, card space? So my memory of some of this stuff is not super precise, but it'll be no matter what. If I'm not correct, I will definitely be entertaining. Um, That's perfect. Hailstorm, uh, Hailstorm, yeah, I think we announced Hailstorm back, er, in fact, earlier, it was around 2001, and we, we, we stopped that project in, I think, in 2002 even, so 20 years ago. Uh, but we were, we were on a mission to uh, help people create uh, services that you could easily interconnect interoperably between any kind of system, web services, really. It was, the, it was a web services era. And uh, we're, we're trying to go beyond simple file and print sharing that we'd done with Windows for, for many, many years. And we were trying to do that over the, over the internet as well. So Hailstorm was a way to create, uh, or a way Microsoft was going to create web services on the internet. You could almost think of it as a, a, pre a predecessor to cloud services. And for any of these things to work, like in any any connected system, but especially in a connected system which is now accessible by anyone over the internet, instead of an enterprise directory service which is inside like a company's network or an organization's network, now it's anybody on the internet, then we knew we had to address identity. We had to know who you were when you were signing in. We needed to solve that problem. It's going to be a, a an essential problem to be solved. Now, about around the same time, uh, there were other things popping up on the internet. The internet was you know, becoming more, more and more popularity. Although 2005, this is right around when, like I can't even remember, when, when, did, uh, when did Facebook become a thing? When did Google become a thing? They, they Much was, later. You know, yeah. Like, was, uh, it, they were uh, founded this was, in 2007, I think. So this was, yeah. uh, it was predating uh, even uh, the idea of uh, those centralized big services. So, some of these big services. Yeah, it's, it was even before that. But even then, uh, in that era of the mid, you know, in the mid first decade of the 2000s, phishing and identity theft was becoming a thing, a problem. Uh, and we, we, so we knew we, we wanted to do something. We, uh, Hailstorm and this idea that you could have this one identity, this one sign in that you could use anywhere on the internet and that Microsoft would run it. The industry was not fond of that idea. So we, we pivoted pretty hard to, well, let's have, let, let's actually put identity in the hands of individual users under their control uh, so that they could decide what information they wanted to disclose and they could do so in a simple manner and they could do so without having to use passwords uh, because there's sort of a broad recognition that passwords were, were becoming a growing problem with respect to phishing, and they, they just, it's just not a, not a great idea. It's not a great idea to have a human be a random number generator and remember those random numbers. So um, 
as, as pastors, you know, really, 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 really good secrets. So we had this idea, let's, let's put it in the hands of end users. And guess what? We, we, uh, we have windows and we could put this capability into windows and that would put it in the hands of lots of people. And they would be able to use it on the internet when they were logging into websites and when they were accessing web services. So it was, it, what, uh, what eventually became called Windows Card Space and what originated as this idea of information cards, a way to represent your identity and the different facets of your identity and then use it from, say, a, a PC. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's what we set out to do um, right around in the middle of 2005, 2006, 2007. That's about when it Yeah, started. it was something like that. Yeah, I, I remember that back in the day, there was this thing of like all the consumers that were using username and password. And as you said earlier, the big services weren't there yet. Like there was not yet the need of having uh, one website that calls the API of another website. It was purely how do I sign into those websites? And from the uh, business perspective, there was stuff like uh, SAML and similar. So mm -hmm. people working in the business had a way of doing this famous uh, single sign-on. But like the man of the street didn't. And so this thing was uh, a revolutionary, like the idea of giving to end users the power to do that and without being tied to administrators that would decide on their destiny, which I guess is like, uh, how would you define this idea of like a user-centric principles? What was the novelty to that? So yeah, this, this information card system had this idea of self-issued cards, cards that you you managed yourself and they were your own and they were on your PC and the keys were on your PC and no one else had any control over them. And then managed cards, which were identities that came with an association that you had with, uh, with other organizations, uh, the government organizations, businesses, employers, etc. Uh, but the really foundational to this was the idea of the self-issued card that you had, you had an identity, it didn't have a, it wasn't a password. It had attributes associated. In fact, you could have many of these things. There, were, there was an idea of a, a wallet of sorts that had the cards in it, and you could have many of these cards, and you could present the one you wanted to present in a moment uh, to represent the particular facet of your identity that you wanted to project. And it, it was all anchored uh, architecturally and, and philosophically in this uh, laws of identity that Kim Cameron blogged about in, in right around... Uh, 2005 or so. I don't think I can remember. I do. Do you think? Could you? Do you have them memorized? Do you have the laws of identities memorized, Vittorio? I don't have them memorized, but uh, I do have. I brought up uh, from uh, the depth of my bookshelf uh, my uh, copy of a book that we wrote about card space back in the day, and uh, uh, here I have a list of the uh, laws of identity which I don't think that uh, we should go through all of them, but just a hint of uh, what, they, uh, what they meant. They were a very, um, I have to say, I don't want to use political terms because uh, in today's climate, I don't want to be canceled or crucified, but they were very much, uh, again, revolutionary, like on the side of a user rather than on the side of a businesses. So the first one was uh, user control and consent. I guess we can comment on this one. Yeah, uh, the idea that uh, an, an entity other than yourself shouldn't control 
your identity. It just should be something that belongs to you. And this is really when we talk about where did where did card space struggle, or where did the idea for behind an information card struggle? It the identity has to exist somewhere, and people use multiple PCs. PCs die like they have they have problems, or you want to get a new one. How do you move your identity around between these devices? That was one of the one of the issues. Like, so if you're going to be under control of your identity, and it's not going to exist anywhere else except on uh, things under your physical control, then how are you going to carry it around? And you have to remember this is this is before the iPhone. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, there were there were smartphones back then of, of various kinds, but uh, it, this is before the the broad popularity of the smartphone. Oh yeah, absolutely. And isn't it funny that uh, it is literally like. Uh, of these days, the fact that the FIDO, um, the FIDO organization announced the multi-device credentials like <laughs> 15 years later, and today we are hailing it as a big revolution, which it is, as in it is solving a problem we haven't solved yet. But, uh, but here, I, I fear that some of our listeners might have uh, might be a bit lost. So let me take a step back and uh, summarize basically what this card space was. So this was a client that was uh, coming pre-installed in Windows. And earlier you said the magic word, wallet. It was uh, a client with a collection of cards. Each card was uh, in affordance, representing one identity, which could be what you decide, as in the self-issued card. You just basically pre-fill a form with some of the things that you want to say about yourself. Whereas other cards were, instead of referring to the identity that some provider, which we didn't say the magic word identity provider yet, some provider like your bank or your government might assert about you, saying, okay, this card contains all the things I can say about you um, when someone asks me who you are. And then the idea was that we had this uh, complex set of uh, protocols. And so a user could uh, pop out a browser, land on a web page, try to sign in, there was a button, and when they click this button, this button would invoke the wallet. The user would see the wallet, would see the list of cards filtered by the things that the website needed so that you could see only the one that you could click. And the user could click on one card and know the fame was being in control, what kind of information would be shared from whom to whom. So basically, uh, that was what's happening. What, what did I forget? You remembered more than I did. The yeah no it, it, yes it was it, it was as simple as that. There was some there was some markup on the page which indicated what things the site needed to, wanted to know about you and the you know clicking that invoked a client and gave you the filtered experience. You picked a card or you or you canceled and said no I don't want to do this and, and off you went. Uh, the the um, the first card space experience <clears throat> uh, a lot of most most people have never seen this before. There's a, uh, as as you were mentioning earlier, the, the product is now extinct. It's removed. It's not in Windows anymore. But the first variant of it, we were so concerned about the security of this experience that we actually launched the card selector on a different desktop, on the secure desktop. So uh, when you go to your Windows PC and you hit Control Alt Delete and it, it brings up the uh, the, where you can like log off or you can change your password. That's the secure desktop. It's actually a special desktop in Windows that can't be reached by processes that are running on, on your normal desktop. And that's deliberate so that they can't 
uh, they, they can't do things on that very sensitive page. Or when you before you sign in, the sign-in screen that you see in Windows where you enter your password is on the secure desktop away from other software that's running on your PC so it can't do things like uh, uh, watch what characters you're typing in the, in, the, uh, in the password screen. So we actually invoked the original CardSpace selector on the secure desktop, which meant there was a big visual transition that happened, a, a, a pretty jarring visual transition, which turned out to be a problem really in the end. Um, and and then you would you would make your choice and you'd go away. It was it was a very industrial experience back then. It was you know it's pretty heavy duty. Yeah, I remember. And the thing is, I think that these already hints to the discussion we'll have later about what happened, why this thing is the subject of a podcast, but not something that people use every day. Like and this also ties us back to our list of the uh, laws of identity. I remember back in the day that. Uh, this thing in which everything would go black and you'd see only the list of cards was touted as one of the ways of implementing the first law, the user control and consent. This was a way of focusing the attention of a user only to what was happening in there so that you wouldn't have anything else on the screen that could look like the wallet, pretend to be the wallet. So it was an attempt to give more control to the user. As it turns out, users aren't always eager to get control. And uh, again, I like that we are talking about this because I know that a lot of uh, young blood is trying to do something similar in, uh, in this space. So, but the human nature, in my opinion, remains the same as uh, 500,000 years ago in terms of uh, Gestalt and similar. So I hope that some of the things that we'll say will, uh, will be useful to them. Great. So the second law was... Uh, Minimal disclosure for a constrained use. Uh, very straightforward. You should only you should only transmit the information about you that is actually needed by the site to fulfill the thing you want to do uh, as the user, and not extraneous uh, extra information, which then might be stored and stolen, uh, and really doesn't pertain to the transaction that you're the thing that you're trying to accomplish. So. The, the, the idea, again, the idea behind these laws was if you built systems that were in conformance with the laws, then people would tend to use them and they would tend to be successful. Uh, if you didn't follow them, then bad things might happen uh, and you might lose users, right? So the, the, uh, in this case, it was if you're, if you're gathering information about people that is not central to the thing you're doing for them, then bad things might happen to you or those users, that was uh, the second law. The whole idea behind the cards having a set of claims or properties associating with them, and then you being seeing, okay, these are the ones I'm going to disclose, and I can, you know, as I'm making my consent, I can say, yeah, these really are the pieces of information that that site needs to know about me. Then yes, I'll, I'll go ahead and click okay. The idea was to make that experience really transparent. It, it, it ties in well with law, the first law. And it definitely is, uh, from a security perspective, it's perfectly in line with the least privilege. And uh, from the first law is like, yeah, use another aspect of the uh, user is in control. Again, I feel that back in the day, we might have been uh, a bit naive in thinking that these might drive users uh, to adopt or not adopt. Because like uh, today, with the emergence of the uh, various trackers, 
and it's so uh it's so real it's like uh, it's so relevant to today because like one of the things i do in my day job is uh, to deal with the browser vendors that are adding constraints to the way in which browsers work so that uh, they can prevent trackers to do exactly the thing the card space was designed to prevent at the very beginning which was uh, here, there is what is going to be shared as opposed to today's tracker that try to gather as much info about you because it uh, will come in useful for something else, like giving you an ad rather than doing the thing that you were trying to do today. And in my impression, this thing is not really something that users use as a differentiator, but it does have a lot of implications in terms of uh, legal, in terms of liability, in terms of like whether you have a a toxic asset now that uh, you need to protect because, uh, yeah, you know too much. But anyway, it, this was, uh, again, very intuitive and uh, made a lot of sense. Um, fantastic. Third one, it's another really interesting one, which is uh, justifiable parties. Justifiable parties, just uh, just the entities that are that have a reason to be in the interaction should be in the interaction. There should not be extra ones. The, the idea behind card space was there, there were three, uh, min, minimally three parties involved in a, or, or possibly three parties involved in a given interaction. There, there was the, the person, the, the subject, and then the, the place they were, they wanted to have some service done. And then maybe an identity provider that you wanted to then, again, transfer only the, the minimal amount of information from that identity provider to the relying party. Uh, techno speak for for where this information was going, and uh, only the people who need to be involved should be involved, and that should all be transparent again. Uh, and the cards did make it transparent because you knew where you were going, and you knew the card was very clear about what was the organization that was speaking about you uh, in a nice visual way that people could relate to, and the information that was being disclosed as well. Yeah, and the thing of it to add to this is that the, the protocols on which the interaction was based on just didn't make it possible to anyone to be injected in the flow. Like today, we are used to browser redirects which bounce people around. And as part of this, you can have uh, third-party cookies that uh, send home little messages. You could have extra redirects in the middle that uh, make a little stopover to a tracker domain. So. But instead, with card space and information cards in general, like here, I think it's important to clarify, we are using information card and card space uh, uh, interchangeably, but for the purists, like I can already, I just met uh, Paul Trevnik, one of the uh, historical persons uh, one month ago. I just ran into him uh, and uh, he is uh, delightful. But anyway, he was one of, the, it, one of the persons that would probably complain if we don't clarify this. Like there was a, Information cards, which were an abstract entity, a specification, a data format, let's say, plus protocols for exchanging and issuing uh, tokens modeled on top of, uh, of a thing. And then there was Windows card space, which was, uh, the I'd say, the original and one of the most well-known clients. It was capable of using information cards, but in fact, uh, the protocols were completely open and uh, a plurality of uh, uh, clients emerged in different platforms as well. It's a, a very important point you bring up there about how in today's web-based uh, federation protocols that you, you can be bounced all over the universe, redirected all over the universe, 
And in, if you're not watching the address bar closely, you don't really know where you are. With, uh, with this fixed function interface, the card selector interface, you, you, there was no opportunity for the services that you were going to to paint different uh, UIs for you. It was a fixed function interface and you knew exactly who the interacting parties were and there was no opportunity to try to fool you by, by redirecting you to funny places. And again, the, a lot of what we were trying to do here was help defend people against phishing. And this was one way to do it. Yeah, this was like completely removing the uh, rendering of the experience from the control of third parties. This was like a, a ceremony that was established by the client. Yes, excellent point. And I think that uh, there is a, a bit of a resurgence of some of those things. Like uh, the Chrome team is looking at uh, uh, a thing called the FedCM, in which we're trying not exactly to render the UI themselves, but at least to reserve one particular area of a browser Chrome, which is just used for these kind of interactions. And in general, all the people that are doing uh, wallets are uh, thinking about uh, similar things. So they are making a comeback. The thing is that uh, those guys are now suffering from similar challenges like the one we had back in the day. Like back in the day, Windows was uh, ubiquitous. So having something in Windows meant uh, that you'd reach almost anyone online. But today, we have multiple platforms. And uh, unless the operating system offers something, which apart from Apple Wallet or Google Wallet, there is no wallet yet, um, you needed to place an, this thing in an app. And the way in which we activate this app is very unclear. So the new generations have uh, an interesting problem to solve for giving this ceremony that uh, is a phishing resistant. We'll see what happens. Maybe we should uh, cut to the chase and, and, and start talking about why this thing is extinct. You know, uh, I agree. I think that the, the other principles are important principles, but I think that they are a bit more abstract. So yes, that's, uh, uh, that's a very good point. Like before we get in there, let's uh, flesh out a bit more the, the various other actors. Like uh, we described the, um, the client, so Cardspace itself. And you mentioned that there were two other roles, like uh, the thing that consumes the, the authentication and potentially the identity provider. Do you want to expand a bit on those roles? They're, they're very similar to what you, might, what, what you see today. For example, you can sign into a lot of websites with your Google account, with your Gmail account. The, your, your Google account is the identity provider. The, the e-commerce site you're going to that is accepting the sign-in is the relying party. It, it's, uh, it's the same federated set of parties that are that are familiar today in a variety of these these different scenarios, uh, no no real difference there. It was just a difference in the the experience of the the life cycle of of getting the identity and the life cycle of using it, um, and even at runtime when you go when you go to sign in. So it those are very durable concepts uh, that that have were you know existed before information cards and card space and exist after. And in fact, I think that we can, even if we double click and we actually look at what happened on the wire, uh, the analogy goes even farther because uh, basically cards were um, potential of uh, like the claims that you could obtain 
But then once the user would choose to actually use those cards, what would happen was that uh, behind the scenes, the client would obtain a token, in particular, a SAML token, and this SAML token would be sent to the relying party. And the relying party, just like today, had the responsibility of getting this token, verifying that it was signed, that it was signed from the right place, uh, all of that stuff. Yeah, it was uh, the series of web service protocols known as WSTAR were the, the underpinnings. And, uh, and, and you know, m much was learned in you know, you know, people using, building and trying to use those protocols that has then, uh, we see echoes of it in these later generations like OpenID Connect. Oh, absolutely. Now remember, like, uh, without going into uh, too deep in the rabbit hole, but uh, one of the central protocols that we used, apart from WS security, which was the thing for moving tokens around, was WS trust, which was this thing that modeled how a client can go to an issuer, which might be an identity provider, and ask for a token for then access an API. And uh, that thing, uh, still today, some people occasionally, uh, instead of saying authorization server or OP, that stands for Open ID Provider, they will occasionally have a slip of the tongue and say SDS, which is a security token service, which was uh, actually what was used in there. And in both of an Open ID Connect, there are a number of extensions of a protocol like uh, um, metadata, like exchange, like token exchange. We, which use exactly the same terminology that we were using in WS Star. So that stuff might have, uh, I would say, died, but from that decomposing matter, uh, stuff uh, thrived today. Sorry, the image is not the best, but that's what just came to mind uh, at the moment. It, it's uh, it's it's a wonderful image of uh, yeah. It 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 was it was composted. Oh, it didn't, it, 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 you know, there are fossils and it was composted uh, and you can, you can find evidence of this in, in the future generations. And so the thing that you described was the relying party, the identity provider had uh, the counterpart of this, as in uh, just like there were protocols for sending tokens for a relying party, there were protocols that we used for asking for a token to the identity provider. So all part of these... Uh, nice suit of really complicated, but very powerful protocols that we had back in the day. So I'm very curious to hear your take about why today we sign in with uh, Google, GitHub, Twitter, Facebook, sign in with Apple, and we use a browser instead of having a nice wallet and uh, having a, something which is uh, um, sticking with those laws as opposed to those other things which, despite the best intention of the implementers, they, do are, they are vulnerable to the various abuses that instead the laws of identity try to prevent. It's, uh, it, it's super interesting, by the way. I have a, a variety of hypotheses about why we ended up the way we did. But before I go there, uh, before I go there, you were saying, you know, people can you can sign in with Facebook, you can sign in with Twitter, you can sign in with Google. I uh, I I teach a class uh, sometimes at Microsoft for new people joining the identity division. Uh, it's a boot camp class, uh, and and I teach some of the concepts of federation. 
some people may have seen the videos that I've got on YouTube uh, that, that do some basics of, of modern authentication. But uh, I, I teach this class and there's a, there's a bit I like to do, which I might have invented. I might have invented because of you or someone else that this goes back. But I, I, I tell people uh, everything I needed to learn about home realm discovery, which is the act of how the a relying party tells you where you can go to sign it, where you can go, which identity providers it accepts. Everything I needed to learn about home realm discovery, I learned from Lady Gaga. And I would go to Lady Gaga's website and she, you, could sign, you could sign in there and she offered a variety of different ways of signing in. Now, if you go to Lady Gaga's website right now, you will find that she doesn't offer you any ways of signing in. Uh, in fact, if you want to sign into Lady Gaga's website, for, uh, you, need, you need to uh, have a, your own name and password at her website because Lady Gaga operates an identity provider now. Uh, and much to my frustration, it doesn't matter where you go. Uh, you can go to Justin Bieber's site. You can go to, um, you can go to any uh, celebrity or singer's website and you will not find any federated sign-ins anymore. So the, uh, the pendulum has, has been vigorously swinging, swinging. Anyway, card space and information cards, uh, why were they not successful? Well, one thing was, at the time we did it, the problem was not, was not bad enough. Uh, the the pro the way that we were looking at the problem was uh, we want to help people uh, sign into these websites and do it safely and we want to help def uh, defend against phishing. Phishing was a problem. Phishing is still a problem today. Uh, people are better educated about it now, so it's not quite. But it's still it's still effective. Uh, phishing still causes a lot of breaches. The um, but for most commercial sites, it was easier to. Uh, make people whole after fraud and simply uh, uh, than it was to cause any kind of disruption in their conversion path. So if I'm coming to do an e-commerce transaction with you, I don't, uh, uh, I really don't want to have anything in the path that is as jarring as a change to a, the, the secure desktop and windows and see a completely different looking interface than my website. That uh, was a, a big threat to my ability to get you to continue through and actually complete your transaction. And it was bad enough that it was like, I'm not even going to bother doing that. Uh, if people get defrauded, I will make them whole. I'll do the, the right thing as a business to make them whole. And I can accept that cost and it's going to be a, a, better, a better option for me. So on one hand, the problem wasn't, it wasn't bad enough at the time to warrant something like this. Now on the flip, uh, 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 building on that, the experience was not as good as it could have been either. Like, and this is what, when we went to build the second version of CardSpace, we didn't, it's like, okay, we're not going to have the secure desktop. We're going to try to make this as lightweight a, and, and um, as small an experience on the desktop as possible so that it is not taking away from the experience of the site that you're going to. Um, but even then, it was still a moment where someone could have abandoned their path. And uh, a, lot, a lot of, most websites were, especially, you know, then and, and now, of course, making all kinds of experiments to try to see if I change the color of this button or if I move it slightly to the left or slightly to the right, how much does that change my conversion percentage? Just doing all kinds of A-B experimentation. The idea of having this, this disruptive experience that's coming up was not one that, that many were willing to even look at, no matter how small uh, it might have been. Yeah. So that was another reason. 
you are absolutely right. And uh, funnily enough, today we have uh, at least in principle similar things, like when you are on a mobile app and you try to sign in and uh, the app does the right thing from the auth perspective, OpenID perspective, and pops out of a system browser. Uh, I personally work with lots of customers that are still not on board with that. Even if they have complete control over every pixel that they show on the screen, the fact that the app swaps to a different app, which is the browser, uh, isn't great. And the only case where I see people are somewhat begrudgingly accepting it is in the business context when people get flipped to an authenticator. Like you're doing something and then you need to do step up or a second factor and you might end up in an authenticator which gets invoked automatically and then come back. But today, as I think you correctly you positioned, the problem of fraud is way more widespread. Way more people are online. Way more people access stuff from device, personal devices as opposed to only from a computer from work. And people are way more competent. And so they are, uh, they are more likely to succeed for, uh, for doing this. But I would like to add to what you said that the other side, which is uh, the users, like we, if this is a, a bit like um, people planning for the health of a nation and saying, well, we'd be best if we'd have less uh, saturated fats. And so um, you tell people don't eat saturated fat, but people ultimately will do whatever they want. And so you can place labels on things saying, hey, beware, this stuff is like uh, 2,000 calories for one cubic centimeter things, but ultimately people do whatever. And so with card space, we uh, gave them the broccoli, which is really good for them. But like a lot of people, back in the day, people didn't even uh, hear in the media that they needed this. Like there was this big scare of uh, Hailstorm owning your identity and no one knew what that meant. And then they just jumped in the pool for Google, for Facebook and all the other identity providers. And honestly, Although today, there is just, like, I just gave uh, a keynote two weeks ago in Berlin exactly about uh, people like the man on the street uh, often doesn't care about privacy. I don't know how much has changed since then. Like, uh, if I think of the people in my life that are not the technical people, they are vaguely aware that privacy is a problem, that they are being tracked and similar, but as soon as they need to do some effort, something that goes beyond saying, uh, do not track in a little dialogue that pops out. If they actually need to do extra work, pretty much all of them will choose the path of least resistance. So what, what's your impression of that? I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think most people, I think most people think if it was really that bad, someone would do something about it. And there would be, and there would be uh, like, it would, it would be front and center in everyone's consciousness. Like they would do something about it. So it must be okay. Nothing really bad is happening. And let's face it, even though the audience of this podcast is probably a, a lot of people who are really, uh, really well-versed on identity, I bet, and I'm, t I'm, I'm talking to you out there, you all have passwords that you use on more than one website. You absolutely do. And now you're thinking, okay, some of you are thinking, no, 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 I've got different classes of passwords I use. I definitely have a different one for my bank account than anything else, but I have this other password I use because... And, and then there's and then there's another class of people who are on the, listening to this podcast who are saying, 
dude, I use password manager. They're all, you know, random passwords. But uh, nevertheless, that there you you are in the minority. Those folks are in the minority. Most of us, yeah, there's a password that we use at a lot of different websites. And nothing terrible, nothing really terrible happens to most people. Um, so yeah, it's just, uh, I agree with you. People, people will, uh, what's it Kim Cameron used to say? People are lazy. They're going to find the path of least resistance. And that's not, he wasn't saying that in like a derogatory fashion. It's like human nature. People are going to, yeah, they're, they're going to, uh, exert the least amount of energy to get the job done, uh, because that's efficient. So yeah, that was, yeah, definitely. That was another reason. Um, there was a, there was another reason that it come to mind. Oh yes, actually it, it comes back to this idea of, of password managers, but of this, this, there was this notion we had of the self-issued card. It's a card that belonged to you. Uh, it was a set of, uh, keys on your machine that were, uh, asymmetric keys. So there's no password involved here. You've got strong, you're using strong cryptography, but what happens if your computer dies? How do you start over? Uh, how do you go, you know, all these websites that you go to that you have to start over with, how do you do that? And how do you rebind yourself uh, to those sites? And then uh, smartphones were emerging. How can I use the same identity from many different devices? Uh, and how do I bootstrap that as if I, you know, heaven forbid, I drop my phone over the side of the ferry on the way home and it's in the ocean. Like, what do I do? How do I, how do I get back? Uh, and I think these are, these problems still exist today. If we, if we don't want to use storage in people's brains that we use with passwords then and we don't want these keys to be escrowed somewhere in in the cloud as well where they could still get stolen then how do we solve this problem and it, i think that's a that's a problem that still exists today and i think that was a problem for card space uh how do you boots how do you bootstrap and how do you recover when you lose uh cards we didn't have great solutions to that it is still a problem today I think that the latest attempt is what we said earlier, the uh, multi-device uh, um, uh, passkeys, um, which, by the way, uh, the episode right before the one that we're recording right now was exactly on that topic with uh, Andrew Shikar and uh, Tim Cappali. And uh, uh, that is going. I think that that is the best attempt I've seen to date to uh, solve this problem. It still has its own things because uh, now you have... Uh, Google, Apple, and Microsoft. That will be the repositories of these. And one might say, sure, Apple is very interested in keeping iCloud as secure as possible, but still, now you have everything in iCloud. Also, if you decide that you no longer like the iPhone and you want to go to Android, there is no clear path. But anyway, that's for today's topic. That was definitely one of the things that uh, made CardSpace adoption uh, Problematic, and and these are, I, I that the, I think that about covers all the thoughts that I had about like what did I learn as a product manager as I went through this exercise. What what did it, it, you 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 the the friction with the user and what they're trying to do is king. You you have to not get in the way of that. You have to have ways of of these bootstraps and and recoveries because these things happen. It's life happens. It's messy. You have to be able to uh, accommodate it. Now, should will you know will, will this ever be a success? Uh, I, I think I heard. I can't remember where I heard this before. If it's uh, if this quote should be attributed to someone, 
uh, a luminary or something like that. But I think it was a venture capitalist and their, their quote was, it's as bad to be early as it is to be wrong. Uh, so was card space early or was card space wrong? Uh, I actually believe that passwords can't be the answer for the, for the long future, that there has to be a better way for us to do identity. Uh, there has to be a way, better way for us to, to manage these kinds of authentication relationships and stuff. So uh, I'm absolutely convinced that we will solve these problems uh, and we will find practical ways to solve these problems. And I, I actually share your optimism around pass keys and a passwordless future. Uh, it, we'll, we'll definitely get there and, and we, we learn a little bit along the way as we go. Because uh, because we just can't passwords can't be the end. Yeah, that, that can't be the end of the story. I I absolutely agree. But the thing that uh, I would uh, add, which is unfortunately a bit more nuanced, is that uh, I'm assuming that we will solve the mechanics of uh, proving yeah it's me uh, the same guy from yesterday with all the various tactics that we uh, mentioned earlier. I think that the more um, nuanced aspect that uh, Cardspace offered, which, uh, in the, again, is coming back up with things like verifiable credentials and some of the decentralized thoughts, is that uh, this idea of uh, the user having more control over how and when and to whom they um, present attributes describing themselves is, uh, um, is something that we, we will need to solve. The thing that uh, I believe is missing, was missing in card space and is missing right now in my interactions I have with the people that work in this space, again, is a bit of nuance. Let's say that uh, I think that there are scenarios that today we aren't good at addressing. Like uh, if I want to be able to present my identity to a certain relying party without the source of the attributes that I want to show knowing that I'm doing it, there is no easy way of doing it. And I think that there are scenarios that where these would be a useful capability. Or the things about minimal disclosure, the ability of saying, well, I have this thing which contains 10 attributes, but I only need to disclose two. That is also something that is useful. But to me, this stuff is incremental, as in uh, there are scenarios that we can't do today or that today we wing it uh, with uh, traditional technology that would be better done with this. But a lot of the scenarios that today people are doing business on just make sense and will keep making sense even when they don't uh, offer perfect privacy because uh, people and relying parties showed that uh, for those things they don't care. So to me, the mistake, which I'm afraid people will do again, is to be intransigent and try to make this new experience the only experience that people can do for doing identity. If they do it, I suspect that uh, they'll uh, have a similar experience to the one that we had uh, back in uh, 2006, 2007, 2008. But I don't know, it might just be old man shake fist at the cloud. What do you think? Maybe you should have a follow-on episode about you proof. Uh, but um, you... Go, uh, for those of you listening, yeah, go, go Google that one, and, and maybe you can ask Vittorio to interview some people about that. But the uh, 
Yeah, that's a very interesting point. It's a it's a very interesting point. Even the laws of identity suggest a plurality of providers. They don't. They actually don't suggest a plurality of experiences. Uh, but um, and, and and whether or not those you know the the laws are enduring, and uh, or if we should be you know we should reflect as we try to apply them in the future. Uh, I don't know. But I, all I know is that uh, we will solve the problem. Uh, and it will be very important that the nature, when we solve this problem, and when it reaches a critical mass uh, of, of users, it will change many of the dynamics uh, on the internet, and and it'll change it'll change things in I, I predict in unexpected ways, um, sort of like the introduction of a jet engine instead of propellers. We're going to get a whole different set of things happening, and a whole different set of opportunities when we get there. Oh yeah, and uh, if you think of things like uh, the mobile driving license that uh, is being modeled on top of verifiable credentials, and you think of all the circumstances in which we use uh, that thing uh, in normal, like the plastic version, and uh, what will happen when we have a digital one. And the thing is that uh, I think that people also um, underplay the risks which are behind this because, uh, like today, doing. Uh, um, Strong identity proofing is hard and it's expensive. Uh, and so it happens only when you really must do this. Like uh, if you need to renew your global entry application or if you need a loan, then you will have to pull out the documentation. But in your day to day, when do you say, darn, if I could use my uh, my driving license with this website? It, it, it happens relatively uh, rarely. but. The moment in which you have a digital version, you can use it all the time, then you might see people that don't need to actually have that level of verification push to obtain that level of verification, which might result, paradoxically, in worse privacy than what we have today. Because again, today we can go through the internet and very rarely have a strong proof of real, real name identity. So again, we see what happens. I agree with you that uh, jet engine instead of propellers is going to be interesting to see play out. Once you make something easy enough, the dynamics can change in in, in really strange ways. I I, I totally agree with you. It'll, it'll, it will be interesting to see. Wonderful. Well, I kept you for uh, more than 50 minutes, so I don't want to abuse uh, of your patience too much. And I'm very grateful that uh, you were willing to uh, spend this time with me reminiscing. Normally, at this point, I'd uh, ask you for a call for action. But uh, uh, this thing, as uh, we <laughs> put it uh, nicely earlier, has been composted. So there isn't uh, a lot of action we can do. But nonetheless, are there any parting thoughts that you can use to close this uh, nice chat we had? Uh, um... Kim, Kim Cameron, who you, you and I both knew well, used to say, anybody who works in identity is a friend of mine. Uh, well, while there's no particular call to action with respect to information cards and card space, I, I want to you know, continue the spirit of identity is everybody's problem. We all get to work together on it. And we, we gain so much more by, by, we gain a lot. We gain a lot by working together on it. Uh, so I, I'm I'm looking forward to uh, continuing to to work in identity and make many more make make many friends uh, 
in in this space so that we can all we can all make the internet safer uh, kim kim used to call say what was it uh the making the internet safe for colonization fantastic i cannot think of a better message for closing the episode so thanks Stuart, for your time today thank you for having me it was uh it was wonderful and thanks everyone for tuning in until next time Thanks, everyone, for listening. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite app or at identityunlocked.com. Until next time, I'm Vittorio Bertocci, and this is Identity Unlocked. Music for this podcast is composed and performed by Marcelo Wolowski. Identity Unlocked is powered by Of Zero in partnership with the OpenID Foundation and ID Pro.